Good morning. Today is All Saints Sunday. It's one of the two days in the Christian calendar where Christians are led to remember together those they love that have died. The other one is Easter Sunday. So the tradition of Christianity for centuries has been there's two days a year where Christians intentionally remember together as a part of their worship those they love who have died. So for me, it's my mother, it's Janelle's father, both of whom we lost in the last couple of years. It's a child we lost to miscarriage named Sydney. Now, I'm not asking you to actually answer out loud, so this is a fake question. Just like, think internally, maybe. Who should you be remembering this morning? Who have you known and loved that is no longer with us? This is what we're to do this morning. I think of Alan Lamont, the first man person in our church who died. I think of Karen Cazell, Nick's mom who died. I want you to call to mind those that you have known and love who have died. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning and you're a Hindu or a Buddhist or Baha'i or Muslim or or an atheist, or agnostic. I'm glad that you're here this morning because this morning you're going to get to hear um, the whole point of the sermon this morning is what do Christians think about the dead? And if you're considering Christianity, this is a really good thing for you to know about Christianity because Christianity has a unique perspective on death. Now, in order to know what Christianity thinks about the dead, we have to know that the Bible is different than the books of other religions, the other religions' sacred texts, in a number of ways. In a number of ways, it's the same. But in some very specific ways, it's quite different. And one of those is that alone among the sacred texts of religions, the Bible tells a story. The Bible claims that it's the true story of the world and of humans. So what we're going to do this morning, as we remember those who have died that we've loved, and we try to imagine what are they doing now? Where are they? How should we imagine them now? What, I sh- what should I be imagining? Like for me, one of the challenges of my life the last couple of years is that my mom died in COVID alone in a sterile hospital room. And I saw, and the nurse gave me a picture of her right before she passed. And it's been hard for me, it's been a lot of therapy for me to, to imagine that moment accurately. Because my imagination has thought of her dying alone, which is not true. The Lord does not let his loved ones die alone. 
But that's been a stain in my mind. I nearly died and the Lord was with me in the hour of my experience of the valley of the shadow of death. And I've had to learn to believe that the Lord was with my mom in the valley of the shadow of death. But what about now? Now that she's passed through the valley, where is she? What is she doing? So if you're not a Christian, you get to hear what Christians say about this. And to understand this, we have to start at the beginning. Genesis, page 1. So if you have a Bible with you, turn to the very beginning of it. And let's notice how death is handled in the story the Bible tells. Genesis chapter 1, the very first sentence of the Bible is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It means that God made everything. It means not just what's up there and down here. But it's a poetic technique called a marasmus, where you name terms of extreme, and it means that God made everything. It's like me saying to Janelle, I love you day and night. I love you all the time, right? I love everything there is about you. God created everything. But here's what's interesting. As you keep reading through Genesis chapter 1, you notice that God keeps stopping. He, he makes a little something, and then he stops. And those of you who've read this part of the Bible... He makes a comment over and over and over. And what's the comment he makes? It's good. That, that, that's good. We see this in, in verse 4. After he made light, it's good. Joetta, don't you think light is good? Can you imagine the moment light was created? God looks back and thinks, I'm about to launch the career of a lot of artists. <laughs> verse 10, after the continents began to emerge... He says it's good. Verse 13, after vegetation grows, he stops and just beholds it and notices how good it is. And verse 18, after the creation of the sun and the moon, he pulls back and he's like, oh yeah, this was a good day. Verse 21, after the arrival of fish and birds. I, I love our stained class. These are the days of creation. And I love this one over here with the birds and the fish. Verse 25, after he made the land animals. So in Genesis chapter 1, it's like God is this master chef. And he's, he's invited you over. And he's prepared a seven-course meal. And after every course, he sets it out on the table. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's good, isn't it? And then finally, after setting the pièce de résistance on the table... After creating humans in verse 31, he changes what he's been saying. And for the first time, he says, it is very good. But then when you keep reading the Bible like a good story, like you're supposed to read it, when you get to chapter 3, all that changes. Because here for the first time in Genesis chapter 3, we encounter the horror of sin. Human beings reject the goodness of God's creation. And through this act of sin, humans are changed. We become sinners. People marked both in ourselves and in our lives, we become marked by the wound of sin. And so in that moment, when sin enters this good, 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 very good creation, suddenly the results 
are catastrophic. It's important for us this morning to see that the Bible describes the effect of human sin in a number of different ways, but I want to point out two of them this morning. One of them is that one of the effects of sin is that all of that goodness gets spoiled. It gets corrupted. Today we look around and we live in a broken world. I mean, reading that psalm this morning, I was thinking of Israel Hamas, and I was thinking, holy cow, what does that psalm mean for this terrible thing that's going on? Because I know what it doesn't mean for that thing that's going on. I know it does not justify Israel killing children in Gaza. And I know it does not justify Hamas killing and plundering in Israel. And whatever it means in the context of this story, it cannot mean that, right? We look around this world right now and we see war and poverty and greed and injustice and cancer and dementia. And the Bible teaches us that all of this is the result of sin, not necessarily so-and-so sinned and so X happened, but that God intended creation he intended it in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 to reflect the wholeness between God and humans and the world. But sin has broken this wholeness, splintering it into the ruin of corruption. And this extends to all of the creation. We live with broken inner lives and broken bodies and broken relationships and broken cities. That's one of the results of sin. But another result of sin in the beginning of the story is death, not just corruption, but also death. Look, in fact, if you have your Bible at Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God is talking, and he says, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death enters God's good creation because of sin. In fact, in chapter 4, we find out Cain kills Abel. In chapter 4, verse 23, Lamech kills a man for wounding him. In chapter 5, verse 5, Adam dies. And then in chapter 5, verse 8, Seth dies. And then in chapter 5, verse 11, it's like increasing, more frequent, more intense. Enosh dies, and it just avalanches and goes on and on. The, look, the Bible is a story. It is the history of the whole of creation and the history of the human race. And it is a huge story. It's sprawling. And like all stories, it's got a beginning. That's what we've been looking at. But it's also got a middle. And it's got an end. That's what makes a story. Plot, movement over time, beginning, middle, end. And so as we're trying to figure out what is death, where, where are our loved ones now, we need to look at this whole story Okay, so let's turn to the middle of the story. The middle of the story starts in my Bible on page, I don't know, let me see, what is it? Matthew chapter one, page 973. The middle of the story the Bible tells about death, the middle of it is the life of Jesus. And the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are um, pretty much like biographies. They, they tell the story of the life of Jesus. And when we look at the middle of the story of the Bible, when we look at the life of Jesus in the biographies, what we see Jesus doing is he is working to reverse the effects of sin on humans and on the creation. 
to rescue his creation, not just humans, humans and the creation, to rescue it from this twisting that occurred when sin entered, to to restore to it his original goodness. And what's important for us to see this morning is that the scope of Christ's salvation is as great as the scope of the Father's creation. So what Jesus was doing on the cross was not only about your own guilt, your own mess-ups, the things you confessed a few minutes ago. It was about that. But it was about more than that. It was also about nations being healed. It was also about creation itself being rescued. It was about the total effects of sin being reversed. What we see in the Gospels, all four of them, is that Jesus, through his life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection, he was taking on the power of sin, taking on to himself the corruption, the twisting, taking on to himself the death that results and defeating it. Defeating the evil, defeating the sin, and defeating the death. And when he rose from the dead, he opened the door to the new creation. That's the middle of the story. And there is so much more to say about that. But for the sake of our subject this morning, now let's turn to the end of the story. Where is this whole thing going? So if you have a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Remember, the Bible tells the story of the history of the world and the history of humans. It starts with the phrase, in the beginning, right? And then... This goodness gets broken. Then Jesus comes to heal and rescue and reverse the effects of all that brokenness. And then notice where it says the story of the world, the story of humans is heading. This is Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This word new, it's our word renewed, right? It's this idea that um, the whole thing is getting renewed, rescued. Restored. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The whole story is headed toward not us leaving earth to be with God in heaven, but God bringing heaven to be on earth. It, the whole, look, the Bible starts in a garden with a wedding. And it ends with a destination wedding. It ends with a wedding, the wedding of heaven and earth. It's critical to see here. I heard a loud voice saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I love that phrase. 
I mean, I, when I read that, I imagine a little kid just crying, 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 like out of control, right? Everybody's trying to comfort the kid. The kid's swinging, punching, kicking. Well, maybe not your children. <laughs> Until mom gets him and he calms down and I can see her hand, right? Wiping away his tears. There are some of my tears that even my mother couldn't wipe away. My wife can't wipe away. The Lord himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And here's the next verse, the next phrase. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Here we see that the Christian hope is for this earth to be renewed and life on this earth to be death-free. The whole cosmos healed, creation delivered from its bondage to decay, humanity set free. This is a renewal of the highest order. This is the world's greatest remodeling project, right? But this is, and this is critical, the Christian hope is that God dwells with us, not us with him. God is coming here. Now, what's so important to see is that the Christian view of salvation is the answer to the problem created by sin. Back at the beginning, when we recognize the Bible as a story, we learn to read the end in light of the middle and in light of the beginning. And when you do, you see that the Christian view of salvation is that what is broken about creation is made right. And the imposter called death is annihilated. Death dies. The power it's been inflicting on us is turned on itself. So the Christian vision of where this whole thing is headed is that one day we get to enjoy life without the specter of death shadowing us at every turn. Can you imagine raising teenagers knowing death is not a possibility? What we get to enjoy as Christians is life in a renewed, good, death-free creation. Not some disembodied Casper convention in the sky. One of the most powerful moments in all of Scripture is when the prophet Isaiah is describing this glorious, hard-to-imagine future reality. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall 
not be cut off. Do you see our salvation is linked up to the rejoicing of creation? The creation itself will be set free to a state of goodness. Now, today, All Saints Sunday is on this side. That hasn't happened yet. So what about death now? Or let me be more specific. What about my mom right now? Or Janelle's dad right now? Or her grandparents? Or Karen Cazell? Or Alan Lamont? Or Patrick Hogan? Where are they? Well, first of all, the Bible says they are in heaven. They are with Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, have no hope. Sleep's a metaphor here. When someone is asleep, I've got a particular son who's around 20 years old. I, I won't tell you which of my children it is. But he, when he sleeps, he is dead to the world. He's got like alarms set around the room. He's gotten us to like, please come and help me. It's ridiculous. <laughs> we often describe somebody asleep dead to the world. In other words, they're still alive, but they're taking a break, right, from the hurly-burly of things. This is what Paul is speaking of. We saw this a couple of weeks ago in Philippians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Paul said, if I'm alive in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to die and be with Christ. That's far better. So my mom's in a better place. Mr. Hickey's in a better place. Those who were faithful to God and have died are in a state, this is the critical phrase, of restful happiness. Isn't that beautiful? That's what the Bible tells us. They are in restful happiness. But, and this is so important, Heaven is not the end point. Heaven is not the goal. Heaven is not the end of the game. Heaven is a temporary place. Right? The Bible doesn't end with us going to heaven. It ends after that with heaven coming to earth. They are resting, happy, and waiting what are they waiting for? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which justice will be at home. Isn't that what you long for right now? That justice would be at home on this earth? If you've ever lived through real evil, there is something dissatisfying about heaven and earth no longer existing. It's a bougie idea to imagine a future without justice. Heaven is the temporary place of rest before God completes his work of making the entire cosmos new. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. In the next verse, verse 14. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. I love that passage in the middle of Job. Yet with my own eyes, I will see. What is my mother doing right now? Well, first of all, there's very little information about the, in the Bible about what she's doing. But it, what it does tell us is very clear. Restful, happiness, waiting. Grandma's with God. That's a very cool thing. It's something to look forward to. Paul did. They're resting. They're happy. They're waiting. But the major emphasis of the Bible is on what happens after heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 says very clearly that Sydney, the baby we lost in a miscarriage, is going to come with Jesus. He's holding her safe right now. And he's going to bring her. And he's going to bring my mom, and he's going to bring Karen, and he's going to bring Patrick, and he's going to bring Alan, and he's going to bring those who died in faith. He's going to bring them back and give them a new body. My mom, at the end, stooped over. She broke back down below five feet. She had sworn her whole life she was over five foot tall. It was quite clear at the end she wasn't. She's going to get a new body, not so stooped up. We saw this in the spring, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 4, 40 through 43. These new bodies will be able to handle the new heavens and the new earth. And then what? Oh, that's when the fun starts. We're going to eat and drink. Our gospel passage, John chapter 21, verses 4 through 14. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has the new body, and he's eating. Look, if you love food then you might resent the idea of an eternity in heaven without food. I mean, you know, when I was little and I thought this whole thing ended in a giant everlasting worship service in the sky, to be quite honest, I thought, well, I'm supposed to look forward to that, but that sounds pretty boring. We're going to have relationships. We're going to work. The age to come is not heavenly bliss. It's earthly bliss with friends. Imagine those moments that you've had with friends and family at, at a Christmas or a holiday, that, that perfect moment where you're sitting at the end and you just don't even want to go to sleep because it was just right. Doesn't get any better than this. But it does. The most ordinary moments in the new heavens and new earth will be greater by far than the most perfect moments now. It can get better. It will get better. The Christian hope is not simply, I go to heaven when I die, but that God will renew the entire cosmos and we will get to dwell in this good place without brokenness and without death, with incredible satisfaction and complete joy. The Bible teaches us that life in the new heavens and new earth will be more real and more physical than life is now. C.S. Lewis captured this so well in his Chronicles of Narnia. The, the greens will be greener 
The blues will be bluer. My friend used to tell his little children when they asked him, what happens when I die? And he would say, you get to be with Jesus, but then one day Jesus will bring you back to this earth healed and you will swim with dolphins and run with cheetahs. In a marvelous little book on prayer, C.S. Lewis wrote, the hills and valleys of of the new heavens and the new earth will be to those you now experience not as a copy is to the original, not as a substitute to the genuine article, but as the flower to the root, the diamond to the coal. The birds will sing out and the waters will flow and lights and shadows will move across the hills and the faces of our friends will laugh upon us with amazed recognition. The faithful to God who have passed away, they are resting. They are happy. And they are waiting. And so today, All Saints Sunday, in the words of the great 16th century theologian Martin Busser, we should give thanks to God for them and rejoice with them so that we may be strongly provoked to place greater confidence in the grace of God for ourselves and to follow their example of the faith. This is where the writer of Hebrews comes in, our New Testament reading. Hebrews tells us at the end of his long meditation on the faithful dead in Christ, he ends it with these words. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray.